and welcome to The Race to the White House, where we bring you the latest news, politics and policy from the US election campaign trail. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next 55 days as we count down to November 8, when America will elect its 45th president. Joining me in the studio now to guide us through what seems to be an endless round of fundraising, photo ops and arcane electoral procedures, which have come to define the fight for the White House, is Tom Switzer. Hi, Tom. G'day, Emma. Great to be here. Tom is a senior fellow at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, where he has taught undergraduate courses in US-Australian relations and American history and politics. Also joining me is Brendan O'Connor. Good to be talking with you. Brendan is an associate professor at the United States Study Centre, where he's taught courses on American domestic politics and foreign affairs and is an expert in anti-Americanism, neoconservatism, the Iraq War and, of course, why we're all here, presidential politics. And eight weeks to go. That's right. So thanks for joining us on the inaugural episode of The Race to the White House. Today we're going to kick off and look at what's been happening in the last seven days of the news cycle for the US presidential election and we'll be examining what exactly constitutes populist politics. So obviously uh, we can't escape it. Uh, Hillary Clinton, she's been diagnosed with pneumonia. Um, She was filmed appearing to collapse as she left an event to mark 15 years since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And um, for those of you on Twitter, uh, hashtag Hillary's health has been trending and, you know, health issues on the campaign trail. Are they a serious concern and could they be a threat to Hillary's run at the White House? Brendan, uh, what do you think? Well, I don't think it will be a major problem in the end unless her health doesn't recover. So if it's, uh, you know, a serious uh, flu, pneumonia, and she gets over it, uh, it will be one of these uh, footnotes in the presidential election. If she doesn't get over it, then there's going to be a more lingering questions of why is there deeper health problems. But at the moment, it's one of those things that seems important, but it won't, I don't think, be that important uh, on election day in November. I think Brendan is right, uh, but I would add uh, something that Maureen Dowd, the uh, award-winning columnist at the New York Times, says, it's not Hillary's health that's the problem, it's Hillary's stealth. <laughs> it's the cover-up. Um, the lack of transparency, you know, uh, she was diagnosed with this pneumonia on Friday, but we only found out about it after she had the setback on the Sunday. Why on earth did the Clinton campaign not reveal this material during that previous two days? And the other thing to bear in mind is for 90 minutes after she had this stumble, and I agree with Brendan, all things considered, it's not that big a deal if she doesn't have any more stumbles, but why did it take the campaign 90 minutes to acknowledge, uh, put out a statement to acknowledge what's happened and where she is and what's happening? It it's, uh, sort of reflects the, uh, the sort of widespread doubts about the Clinton campaign. Well, it reflects the lack of trust in the press. If the campaign had a good relationship with the press that covers it every day, a more casual relationship, they would have been up front and said, campaigning is hard, you get sick sometimes. Malcolm Turnbull had a terrible cold, I think, in the remaining days of the end of the Australian campaign. Mm -hmm. You would have a casual conversation. But there's a level of mistrust that they don't pass on basic information, which probably isn't that damaging, because they don't want 
her uh, her stamina and health, which has been a, a major sort of meme on the far right. There's been the sense that Hillary Clinton really had a stroke uh, towards her time at the end of being Secretary of State, that she's got profound health problems and like everything, mm-hmm. the Clintons just hide them and uh, and lie. So there's a there's a degree of paranoia in the way she's responded to these email allegations and we see it in a more minor way in this health reaction that instead of just being up front with the press there's a kind of micromanagement of how these things are going to be uh, regarded that sometimes backfires and it backfired in this regard. So Kane, her running partner, has also come under some heat from the New York Times I think today and um, people are asking him how long did he know and how long has he been sitting on this information. Is this information that we should have access to? I think so. I mean, you know, in Britain, I only found this out the other day, but 600 people die every day from pneumonia. And uh, while we're on the history angle of this, uh, William Henry Harrison, President of the United States, died of pneumonia one month into office. (laughs) Now, this is walking pneumonia, so it happens. It's all things considered, not a big deal. But yeah, I think she should have acknowledged this for sure. I think the bigger question is how much should we delve into the more permanent health issues of uh, presidential candidates, of politicians running for all sorts of electoral offices? Do we get this uh, sort of open uh, access to their doctor's records and to any, uh, you know, should they be subjected to a medical as they're, they're going to fight and battle overseas? And there maybe is a case for that. This is, and Brendan, uh, there's a benchmark here, isn't there, in 2008? Well, indeed. I mean, John McCain was running as a 71-year-old man. He'd had melanoma. He'd spent many years as a prisoner of war. Uh, He was up against a fairly young and not-so-grey Barack Obama at the time, and he released something like 1,200 pages of medical records saying, I am, uh, you know, a picture of health for a 71-year-old man, and as we know today, he's running for re-election in Arizona. So that, that turns out to be relatively true. But... I mean, what do you think, Tom, in terms of full disclosure, or is this a question of privacy? Politicians deserve a degree of privacy to say, look, my health is my personal information and uh, I just shouldn't have to reveal it. I think they should reveal it, particularly when we're talking about two, all things considered, uh, elderly candidates. I mean, Hillary Clinton will turn 69 next month. She is the oldest Democratic uh, candidate running for office. Donald Trump is 70 years of age. If he is elected on January 20 when he's inaugurated, he'll be the oldest president inaugurated. So I think it's incumbent on folks who who get to that sort of age group that they have to be frank. Mind you, even John F. Kennedy, one of the youngest presidents in American history, um, he was covering up his Addison's disease uh, in the White House. So uh, I do believe there's a degree of accountability here. 1,200 pages might be stretching it, Brendan. (laughs) But still, I think most candidates should come clean on these issues. And I think Reagan, um, he was the oldest president, is that right? 69? He He holds the record at the moment, so that could likely change with this upcoming election. I guess you could say what happened with Hillary and her health capped off a campaign weekend disaster, perhaps. Hillary obviously began the weekend uh, calling half of Donald Trump's supporters deplorable at a fundraiser. Now, was this a smart move in, in your mind, Tom? 
Well, the fact that she had to apologise and, and run away from those comments indicates that she made a gaffe, and the Washington definition of a gaffe is when a politician inadvertently tells the truth. <laughs> so her supporters <laughs> will think that she was absolutely right to call half of the Trump supporters deplorable. But of course, uh, many Trump supporters, well, all Trump supporters don't think they're deplorable. Look, there's no question uh, that there is a segment of the Trump support base who are nasty pieces of work. Uh, they are racists, Islamophobes, sexists, you name it. But I think it is a stretch to say uh, half of his supporters are deplorable. We're talking about tens of millions here. I think uh, Trump's appeal, all things considered, is largely based on tapping into this widespread sense of economic anxiety, a real backlash against Washington, against both major parties. Um, there's a degree of the race factor, but I think she overstepped things and the fact that she walked it back indicates that uh, politically uh, the campaign thought it was a damaging remark. I don't know if it was a gaffe. Uh, the media are invited to this event. Apparently she's used this phrase uh, as an elegant as it seems, a basket of deplorables. Um, not immediately what I think of taking on a picnic, but um, it's, it's, uh, it is... Um, it is something she's used before, and she the the wider context for the comment at the fundraiser was: look, half of Trump's supporters are unreachable. They they are these deplorables who hate African Americans, Hispanics, women. Uh, they're anti-Islamic, and we can't reach them. You know, those are the people that Donald Trump could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue, as he said, and they would still vote for him. Mm. There's another half. She goes on to say who are reachable. These are people who feel like no politician has been listening to them. They just want change. They're unhappy with the state of the economy, a whole range of more complicated issues. And those are the people she was saying we've got to reach out to in the remaining days of the election because they are possibly able to be won over because they're not convinced that Trump uh, is what they're looking for. So there were, it was kind of pop sociology or pop political science almost that she was... Uh, putting forward, but the comment uh, that, of course, the media has played is this basket of deplorables, which she, to some extent, has walked back from. But she's also put out there to say, look, if you're going to vote for Trump, uh, yeah, that's who you're associated with. So there's 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 a game within this. It's, it's a fairly complicated kind of strategy to some extent. Brendan, uh, some commentators have drawn analogies between her remarks last Friday and Mitt Romney's unguarded moment at that fundraiser when he dismissed 47% of the electorate as um, being government uh, dole bludgers, uh, dole bludgers uh, of the American state. Uh, do, you, do you think there's an analogy there? I don't think so, because Romney was uh, talking at a private fundraiser where he thought no one was recording it. Uh, and a, a waiter got their uh, phone, their iPhone, and put it up at an angle and uh, and just, uh, you know, surreptitiously uh, recorded it. Mm. So he thought it was just a conversation to the faithful. Hillary Clinton invited the press to this event. Uh, it was a script that she had prepared beforehand and used those words beforehand. So I don't think it's the same thing. But mm. the big issue for Clinton is, does it sound condescending? Mm. Does mm. it reinforce this narrative that she's part of the uh, Clinton dynasty? Uh, she's an out of touch, elite politician. She doesn't have any regard really for the voters. It's all about for the her. great unwashed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Trump will use that. Trump will clearly use that to say, I'm a man of the people. Mm. I love everyone. I, you know, I love the racist as much as I love the new immigrant. And so there's a lot of that populist politics in Trump's sort of 
portrayal of Hillary Clinton as part of this elite. And Emma, it's not surprising that Donald Trump actually put to wear advertisements highlighting those remarks almost immediately. Well, that's what I was going to say, gaff or no gaff. Uh, today, also, uh, Donald Trump outlined his childcare policy and he told an audience in Aston, Pennsylvania, that his plan would free Americans from the baskets that politicians put them in. Obviously, uh, <laughs> an oblique reference to Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorable um, comments from last Friday. Um, so, obviously, he's going to run with this as, as long as he can. Do you agree? I think so. And, and frankly, from a political perspective, it's it, it's manna from heaven. I mean, there was a remark made um, after the 1972 presidential election, uh, one of the biggest landslides in American history, Richard Nixon's landslide victory over George McGovern. He won 49 out of 50 states. And Paulina Kalal from the New Yorker magazine wrote the next day or said the next day, how could this be? Everyone I know voted for George McGovern. And now Trump is not going to win a landslide like Richard Nixon did. But nevertheless, there is a sense among uh, the so-called elite in Manhattan and in Washington, D.C., in the coastal cities, uh, that Trump represents the great unwashed. And I think, as, as Brennan pointed out, um, uh, you know, this, this probably hurts Hillary to some extent. But I don't want to overstate the significance of it either. <laughs> I'm Emma Lancaster, and you're listening to Race for the White House. This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Populism is a promiscuous term used to describe a diverse set of political movements around the world. 2016 has been touted as the year of the populist. In the 2016 election cycle alone, it's been used to characterise candidates as diverse as Bernie Sanders on the left, Ted Cruz on the right, and Trump somewhere in between. Uh, so given this diversity, does the concept of populism still have utility? Well, I might jump in there and say, look, there are two ways of seeing this word. One, a fairly populist kind of generic um, pejorative way to say a populist is someone who panders to people's base and lowest instincts. Um, and that often can be people's sense of xenophobia or people's sense of maybe racism. And a populist is someone who goes to the lowest common denominator, who uh, maybe uses the most basic language, who is willing to be fairly crude about their opponents. And you can see why Trump has been described as a populist in this sense. That definition I don't think is that useful. It's basically using populism as a term of abuse, basically saying people who say things that I don't agree with are populists and people who don't are uh, you know, intellects and fine-thinking people like myself. I think a more useful definition of populism and you get this in uh, books about political philosophy and in a sense of uh, political theory is to say populists are people who think of democracy as being about the sovereignty and will of the people and don't have much regard for liberal processes of democracy. So notions of representation, constitutionalism, separation of powers, all of those things are way too kind of technical and in some ways way too pragmatic for the ideas of populists who just want to distill the views of the people in general and don't want politics to become an elite game. So that sense of 
disillusionment with establishments, the disillusionment with vanguards and elites is, I think, really the more useful way to see populist politicians. And Trump has very much appealed on that basis to say, look, I speak for the people of the United States. Their leaders have been letting them down. In fact, their leaders are stupid and don't know what they're doing. And so populists will always have appeal. The problem is translating their ideas or their anger often into a way of running politics or into policies is near impossible. Mm. So it's an impossible dream that populists in some ways show up the weaknesses of democracy as being not particularly representative. It's always been quite elite driven, but populist politics is largely, I think, impractical. So Donald Trump, he's tapping into that kind of anti-elitism, anti-immigration sentiment that um, exists in the US. But is Donald Trump just an American phenomenon? Um, Or is there a clear growing support for conservative leaders who value isolationism and um, are deeply kind of wary of immigration? Yeah, I'd be reluctant to use the word conservative. I think Trump, in many respects, goes beyond ideology. Um, the New York Times, at the beginning of the year at least, it said that 20% of his supporters were registered Democrats. That seems awfully high. But nevertheless, his message is not quintessential conservatism. In fact, I would argue that Trump wants to upend uh, the central pillars of the Republican Party since Ronald Reagan's ascendancy in the late 1970s. Uh, the Republican Party under Reagan, uh, Bush, Gingrich, Paul Ryan, Romney, McCain more or less is believed in an activist global foreign policy, free trade and inclusive social conservatism, um, entitlement reform, free markets, free trade. Uh, Trump is none of those things. He's repudiating his own party in many respects. And I think following on from Brendan's uh, sound remarks, yes, to some extent, I think he does in a way reflect European trends right now. And it's not just a backlash against the political elites in these countries. It's also a search for radical alternatives. And underlying trends include uh, a backlash against economic dislocation as a result of globalisation or modern technology. There's a backlash against illegal immigration and porous borders. There's clearly a genuine fear of Islamic terror. Some might say even conservative Islam. And I think underlying all this is the collapse of the mainstream media and the rise of these alternative, noisy, at times ideological, digital voices uh, that allow um, populists like Trump to propose kindergarten solutions to fantastically complicated problems. Yeah, I'd sort of add to that in some regards and wouldn't just put Trump as an outlier Um, that one of the ways that I'd see American politics really falling apart at the presidential level, if we're going to get into a kind of deeper analysis, to say there's kind of two ways of approaching politics. One way is to be very policy-oriented, which forces you to think about process and costings. And and the politics in in Australia is, is quite often oriented in that regard in comparison to the United States. And there's another way of seeing politics is a very symbolic sort of business, that you're about making people feel good about themselves, that politics is very therapeutic, that you talk a lot about America being a great place or making America great again. Uh, You talk about things which are, to some extent, fantastic, like change or putting up a wall between the United States and Mexico. And there's no real possibility that you could 
bring about a process really to get these things into action. They're about reassuring Americans. I like to call it as kind of a, you know, public self-help talk. They're about making soothing people and saying, look, everything's going to be okay. Uh, we're still going to be a great or exceptional nation or a special nation. And politics has gone along in that path. Really, every election in America, I think, very much since the 70s has just gone along more and more in that regard. And Trump, in some ways, is the kind of extreme end of that therapeutic politics that really just over-promises on a sense of something which is illusionary, something which is a fantasy, uh, but it's going to soothe the American public, is going to sound kind of reassuring or different where Hillary Clinton is a throwback in some regards. I mean, she's a a policy wonk. Uh, She's someone whose clear strengths are when she talks about details and process. And so you have quite a contrast. I mean, her husband had both of these two things. He had the symbolism and he was the wonk as well. And so I thought there was going to be a moment where this election was going to be quite interesting if it was Jeb Bush against Hillary Clinton. That would be a different style of politics. Now, how you how you campaign against Donald Trump as a Hillary Clinton, I think, is very, is, is very challenging. And how you debate him, as we'll see in the coming weeks, <laughs> will be even more challenging. That's right. um, because you're speaking a totally different language. You're not working on the same assumptions. You're not attempting to engage in politics in the same way. Mm. How do you think, then, um, Clinton's campaign could use populism in her campaign communication? Well, in some respects, she's already embraced parts of that economic populist agenda by moving to the left on trade. Um, And the classic case in point here is the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. When she was Secretary of State, uh, she acknowledged that the TPP was a a very important part of the so-called pivot to Asia. Uh, She said it was the gold standard for trade deals. But of course, during a very competitive uh, pre-selection process, a primary process, she faced Bernie Sanders, a 74-year-old socialist Democrat who ran hard on trade. So she moved to the left. And I think in some respects, she's actually moved there now. And Trump, if you like, crudely putting it, is to the left of Hillary on trade. (laughs) I mean, he wants to put something like 40% tariffs on Chinese goods. Yeah, I mean, this is a good example of kind of fantastic politics that this is is purely in the realm of fantasy, this 45% tariff on Chinese goods would be ruinous to the American uh, retail sector. Uh, Walmart, the biggest employer in the world and the biggest employer in about 25 American states, uh, would go bankrupt. I mean, a business model relies on cheap goods from China. So it's not... And Trump supporters would have to pay higher prices for their um, their clothes, right? And their rifles. <laughs> so, you know, th- this wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't... It couldn't be put into action. No. So it's the sense of... And I think let's get back back to Obama's comment about what world does Trump operate in? It isn't the world of data and statistics and sort of reality, really, in any regards. It's a it's a world which is imagined or imagined the worst in many regards. We saw at the Republican convention of kind of a talking down negative version of America, uh, which we're not always sort of that familiar with. The Republicans are always a sense of since Reagan, particularly, wanting to look on the bright side and say, look. You know, there might be a few problems, but this is still the greatest country in the world. Uh, so to hear someone uh, talking down America to the extent Trump has, has been very interesting for a Republican politician to do that. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3.
So across the board, we know that Clinton's support has been dropping steadily since late August. And um, meanwhile, um, a higher than usual percentage of voters have refused to disclose their voting preference. Um, and according to Trump's campaign, this is only good news for Republicans. So is there a big hidden Trump vote in the US? And, um, and why um, or will these shy voters be enough to secure Trump the election? Well, my view has long been that uh, Donald Trump's crude and rude behaviour, his divisive rhetoric, his erratic behaviour, his lack of any core governing philosophy will turn off a lot of Republicans, especially mainstream conservative Republicans. Uh, He's clearly going to alienate a lot of Hispanics and other minorities. He will upset a lot of the independents who often swing elections. And again, this is the prevailing wisdom. He will unite Democrats behind a flawed candidate. That's the prevailing wisdom. I've long subscribed to it. And I think that's probably why he will lose on November 8. But this is the most volatile election period we've had. That's right. For so long now. And, it, it, you know, he's clearly tapping into a widespread sense of anxiety, especially among folks who don't usually vote. And in a country with voluntary voting, that's a huge asset. I think it's very hard to know uh, if there are people who do not want to be identified as Trump supporters but will come out on election day. Mm. Uh, I think Trump really is kind of maxing out on older white men particularly, so I don't think those people can deliver him Mm. a victory. He's got to hope that the Hispanic vote is suppressed to some extent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or splits a little more positively towards him than it did towards Mitt Romney. And overnight, there were some polls in Nevada showing slightly more sort of uh, Hispanics were going to support Trump than were going to support Romney, which surprised me to some extent. The other thing of this Nevada poll that was really interesting and the big concern for the Hillary Clinton campaign is that people under 29 will not get out to vote. I mean, famously, these are the group of people who are the most apathetic. They're not registered in some cases. And if they don't get out to vote in the numbers they did for Obama, because they really helped Obama win both of his elections, that's when she's in serious trouble. And there are some signs in these polls that she's going to get less of those people out to vote and they're going to support her slightly less than they did Obama. And that's, I think, why it was very important that Bernie Sanders fulsomely embraced her candidacy at the Democratic Party convention. And I think you're going to see a lot of targeting of that group with the mountains of money that the Clinton campaign has to say, look, you do not want to be uh, going through your 20s as a young person with a President Trump. Uh, So there'll be all sorts of strategies using... uh, you know, rock stingers, singers, comedians, all sorts of things to try to say, look, Trump is an embarrassment to America, embarrassment to you. Get out to vote, uh, even if you haven't thought too much about the policy issues. The problem, though, for Hillary is that she's a status quo candidate in the year of the outsider. Yeah, that's right. An older woman who just didn't have that appeal uh, to younger voters as we saw in the primaries. I mean, She was getting smashed by Bernie Sanders, wasn't she? Younger people gravitated to Sanders Mm. in incredible numbers. And that lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton is, I think, for me, uh, would be the biggest concern in the campaign of just making sure those people get out to vote because we've had this history before in 2004 John Kerry would have been president of the United States if more people under 25 in states like Ohio got out to vote. It could have delivered him the presidency. People sat on the couch that day and Bush uh, remained the president. 
So it's almost time to end the show and this is going to be a regular part of the show. It's called the gut call segment. Uh, So if the US went to the polls tomorrow, who would win? Brendan. Hillary Clinton. Been saying it all year long. I think the demographics are just on her side. Uh, Trump doesn't have a a broad enough appeal. Uh, Ditto. You agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm there too. So uh, that brings us to the close. Mind you, just quickly, Emma, uh, all of us, and I suspect you're in this camp too, we thought that Trump would not win the Republican nomination. But of course, as Brennan's pointed out, the, uh, the electoral arithmetic's a lot different in a general election. I did think he'd win New Hampshire primary because I looked at the polls and I think that's what we've got to do for the rest of the year, Mm. that if the polls at the moment are still favourable for Hillary Clinton, if the polls turn against her and there's a gap, uh, you've got to look at the hard evidence and the hard evidence has been on Hillary Clinton's side all year long. Uh, Donald Trump has narrowing the gap at the present time, whether that lasts or not. Um, that will be something we can discuss in coming weeks. And don't underestimate an October surprise. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) polls only forecast, um, or what the polls alone are telling us about November 8 right now, the chance of Hillary Clinton winning 68.7% and Donald Trump winning 31.2%. Well, that brings us to a close of the first episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to The Conversations website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Uh, This podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 with the support of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thank you to both Tom and Brendan for their excellent punditry. We'll see you back here next week, counting down the race to the White House. 